Well, we are continuing our conversations around gospel devotion, devotion in response to the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at undistracted devotion. Our text is Matthew chapter 26. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 6 through 13. So I encourage you, if you have your Bible, please open that up, uh, and we'll be referring back to it as well. We'll also put the words on the screen. Hear the Word of God. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my head, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. May God bless the reading of his word, and may God also bless our time together as well. Here's the question we're going to end with. When it comes to Jesus being the undistracted center of your life, which one of these responses best describes your desire? Let me repeat that. The question we're going to end with today, when it comes to Jesus being the undistracted center of your life, defining center, the the perspective that dominates all other perspectives, which one of these responses best describes your desire? Is it meh? Is it, well, yeah, sure, why not? Or maybe it's kind of, sort of, most of the time he's the center, maybe? Or I'm trying, I'm trying, stop bugging me about it. Or is your answer to that question, Jesus, Jesus, all for Jesus? Now this question of a desire to have Jesus as the defining center of our life is an important question. And you would think that somebody standing in front of a worship service would say something like that. And, well... I'm a pastor, so you would think I would say it. And, but truly, from the perspective of Scripture, from the perspective of God being God, creating all of the universe, the most important question we could ever consider is the role of Christ in our life. Now, before we get to actually asking that question then, I have a few favors to ask of you. Here's the first favor. If you would, would you compare the records with me? 
You see, Matthew's telling of this story is not the only telling we have in the Bible. It turns out that in Mark's gospel, this same story appears, and it also shows up in John's gospel. Now, the scholars in their study of Scripture have indicated that Mark appears to be primary, that Mark probably came first, and that Matthew and Luke make use of Mark in the writing of their texts, that, that we see some similarities, we see uh, some uh, commonalities between certain passages. This particular passage has a, a, a heightened sense of commonality between Matthew and Mark. John, in his telling, John's a different monster altogether, a great monster. But John just writes later, and in, in, there's some extra drama that's taking place. And, and if we were in John, we would teach what John writes there, but we're in Matthew. And we're not going to feel like we have to harmonize it. We'll just let Matthew be Matthew and John be John. Now, some people say, well, but didn't we just talk about a woman last week with the alabaster flask? I understand, a number of others understand these to be very distinct stories. The story of the woman that we looked at last week, it took place in Galilee. The, the tellings of this woman in Matthew, Mark, and John take place in Judea. The, the questions being raised are completely different questions. And so we have a situation in Galilee that we looked at last week from Luke chapter 7, and it differs from the situation that we look at today. So here's a second favor I'm going to ask of you. If you would, would you remember a teaching of Jesus with me? It's interesting to see the flow of the text. You know, one of the things that the gospel writers could do is that, that they looked at the data, they looked at the, the various accounts that they had before them, the documents, the, the memories that were shared. And, and there is some creativity in the ordering of these things. Led by the Spirit, we trust the Spirit's leading them. But they're not the same window into the activities. We have four different windows into the life of Christ. And in Matthew's ordering of the text, of, of what's included and the way it lines up with what happens next, we find at the end of chapter 25 that Jesus is teaching this. He says that when the Son of Man, which is a way that he referred to himself, when the Son of Man returns, it's going to be like a king who divides his people into two groups. People from all nations divided into two groups. On his right, the king will have um, the sheep, and on the left will be the goats. On the, on the right, the sheep, those are the righteous ones. On the left, those are the ones who were not righteous. And the king will turn to the ones on his right, and he'll say, listen, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me uh, something to drink. When I was sick and in prison, that you visited me. And he lists out some other things as well. And they say to him, the righteous say to him, they say, when did we do these things for you? And Jesus said that the king will say, well, whenever you did it to the least of these, to the disempowered, to the, to the unprovided for, to the, the ones that lack resources, the ones that have no voice, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Of course, he goes on and speaks to the people on his left, and, and he, he says to them, he says, listen, when I was hungry, you didn't give me food, and when I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink, and he continues the whole list, and they go, when didn't we do these things for you? And, and he says that whenever you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Jesus, in Matthew 25, at the very end of Matthew 25, underscores 
how important it is to him that his own people would care for those who need care. To love God means to love neighbor. To love God means to love neighbor, and loving neighbor is a way that we love God, caring for the poor. A third favor I ask of you is that you would hear the announcement. That you would hear the announcement. You see, at the very top of chapter 26, Jesus makes an announcement. It's the fourth time that this announcement takes place is heard in the Gospel of Matthew. The fourth time. Again, we don't have every single word that Jesus ever spoke. We don't have every single word from every single day of his ministry life. But in Matthew's telling of the story, he includes it four times that Jesus said the same thing. In chapter 26, verse 1, we read, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, including the sayings about caring for the poor, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. This is at the very end of his life in this world. You know that in two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He made the announcement. He was going to die. So a fourth favor I'm going to ask of you. And that's that we would together we would observe the comparison, observe the contrast. You see in verse 3 of chapter 26 There's a description provided of a certain meeting taking place, a council, a gathering to make a decision. It says in verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Do you get the picture already? They're in the palace of the chief priest. It is the position, the well-positioned people, these men that are gathering, these people that have power in the community, the chief priests and the elders are gathering in the palace. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's what's taking place in the palace. And the contrast could not be more stark because when we look at verse 6, we find this. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, Bethany is just to the east, over the the top of the Mount of Olives, and just over that top, about two miles from Jerusalem, one and a half to two miles is Bethany, and this was kind of Jesus' home base when he was uh, uh, ministering in Jerusalem. So, when he was at, in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, Now, if you do go to John's telling of this story, we find that John uh, says, well, the woman's name is Mary, and and he points out that this is Mary, the sister to Martha and Lazarus, and that in, in John's telling of this, Simon the leper would have been their dad. At this point, Simon the leper no longer has leprosy. They wouldn't have been in his house. So there had been a healing. They're gathering in the home of one who was a leper. What a contrast. The power positioned people, and now Jesus and his followers and a woman comes into their midst. Let me ask a fifth favor of you. Would you engage the story with me? You see, our story comes with a setting. We just described it, Bethany, 
the house of Simon the leper, we're introduced to one of the main characters in this story, a woman. The name is not known. Yes, John says it's Mary, but we're not going to try to harmonize. And Matthew's telling of this, we don't know who this is. One of the wonderful gifts of not knowing who this is, God knows who this is. The name is not lost on God. She matters as an individual to God. But one of the gifts that we receive in not knowing the name is that we can look upon her actions and we can see ourselves. We can identify her with her. We don't have to say, well, oh, that's just so-and-so. We can say, that's a possibility even for me. We can identify with the woman of this story. Of course, in the first century, they might have asked, should she really even be there? You see, there was this rule that if men gathered to have a conversation, gathered to have counsel with each other, a woman was not to enter the room. This woman enters the room. And she carries with her a flask. Like the passage we saw last week, it's an alabaster flask. It's this flask made of this fine marble. This time in Matthew's telling, it's full of a very expensive ointment. And here's where it's helpful to have both Matthew's window and Mark's window into the same situation. Because in Mark's telling of this, he lets us know that it was uh, pure nard. Pure nard. What is nard? It's this essentially an essential oil from the northern part of India, up in the Himalayas. Mark goes on to say, you want to know how expensive it was? It was, it was worth 300 denarii. Now, we've mentioned it before. A denarii was what a laborer made for one day's work. This jar was worth about a year's income. Can you imagine going into a room with a jar of ointment, this expensive ointment that's worth one year's worth of your salary, and pouring that over the head of Jesus? She pours it over his head as he reclines at table. The next thing we find in the story is an indignant response, an indignant reaction. Matthew says it's the disciples. Mark says it was some of them. John says it was Judas. We'll go with Matthew for today. The disciples respond with indignation. Now, if you're a Presbyterian, a lifelong Presbyterian, you may know something about indignation. Uh, I know that a number of our people have come into our congregation of late, and, and that's awesome. We love it. But it, I grew up in the Presbyterian church, and I remember this experience of indignation that I observed in some of my elders in the church. You see, at some point, somebody during worship raised their hands. And for the frozen chosen which is an apt name for the historical Presbyterian experience, emotion was something you reserved for home, if at all. And here somebody was in worship, raising their hands in response to the good news of Jesus. And they were indignant about it. There's a, a professor at the University of Oklahoma who studies indignation. That's, that, that's his field of study. Uh, the human response of in indignation. Here's the definition he provides. It is a rich definition. Here's what he, he says. The guy's name is Claude Miller. He, he says this, indignation is defined as a non-primary, discreet, social emotion 
specifying disapproval of someone else's blameworthy action. As that action is explicitly viewed to be in violation of the objective order and implicitly perceived as injurious to the perceiver's self-concept. Did you get all that? Okay, we may not know all of those words or remember them in order, but we might recall this as a, as a living definition of indignation. Do you remember when you were in grade school and some kid yelled out, teacher, she's not following the rules. Teacher, she's not following the rules. That whoever that is was disobeying the objective order. And it was causing some discomfort in the one who's tattletailing on her. This is indignation. This is exactly what we find in the disciples. Teacher, she's not following the rules. Teacher, why this race? Jesus, why this waste? You just told us, you just told us that we were called to care for the poor. How dare this woman take this amount of expensive ointment and pour it over your head? Next thing we find in our story is a savior. Now, please, it's not a fairy tale prince. It happens to be the savior. And this is what the disciples routinely struggled to comprehend, that Jesus was this savior, the savior. And so as we continue to engage the story, we next look at Jesus' treatment of the woman. What he does is he, he, he first defends her before the disciples. He defends her before the disciples. He goes, why do you trouble the woman? I can't remember who it was that, uh, that said this in, in the reading re- I did in preparation for today, but they, they pointed out that the disciples had their mind on some non-present poor, some, some group out there. We need to be caring for them. And Jesus says, how about caring for her? Well, we need to be about this, this issue out here. And he goes, wait a minute, what if we just cared for her? I believe, given who Jesus is in Scripture that, and who we've experienced him in this world, that he would have said the same thing if this was a man. It's not because she's a she that he comes to her defense. He comes to her defense because of the choices the disciples are making. The next thing he does is he celebrates her Jesus-centeredness. He celebrates her Jesus-centeredness. There's a way in Greek uh, syntax uh, that if you put something ahead of the verb, it accentuates it. And that's what Jesus does here. It may not show up in your translation, but it, it does in the original language. And in, in, in the Greek, what it says is, um, a beautiful work she has done to me. Jesus would have been in his right to say, to me, she has done a beautiful work. He could have put himself at the beginning of the sentence, but he doesn't. He accentuates her Jesus-centered uh, act, a beautiful work she has done to me. I wonder, I wonder about how much theological insight she had. Like, like had she been tracking, 
Had she heard these four statements where Jesus said the Son of Man was going to have to die, was going to be lifted up and crucified? Has she been paying attention when the others haven't? Did she have theological insight? Even if she didn't hear all four of them, maybe there was discussion. Maybe, maybe she even heard just that last one. And she, is she acting out of theological insight? Or was she prompted by the Spirit? Did the Holy Spirit of God come and just lead her? That she had some kind of conviction, I need to do this. Or was it simply a, a spontaneous act that the providential hand of God the Father was over and caused it to be aligned with what God was accomplishing? The passage doesn't tell us. The passage doesn't tell us. What, he does, what we do find in the passage, Jesus refocuses his disciples on salvation history. He refocuses his disciples on salvation history. He doesn't deny that it's important to minister to the poor. In fact, he says it this way. He goes, for you always have the poor with you. Let's pause there. This may be one of the most misused statements coming out of Jesus' mouth. Well, you know, Jesus said you always have the poor with you, so let's go spend on ourselves. He says, well, you always have the poor with you. It's a reference to a verse that we may not be all that aware of, but they would have been aware of back in the day. It's the teaching out of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. If you read the whole of the verse, it goes like this. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and sister to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. Yes, dot, dot, dot. And you can always care for them. And you should always care for them. In fact, to care for them would be to then to care for God. But he goes on, he says, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. As people who read through Matthew, we say, disciples, why didn't you get it? He just said at the top of the chapter that the Son of Man was going to have to die and be crucified. And the woman got this. She understood it and anointed Jesus for burial. And then he puts it all together for them in verse 13. He says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ dying on behalf of humanity, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, there's a future. The cross is not the end. It's going to be taught. It's going to be proclaimed all over the world. What she has done will also be told in memory of her. The story of this unnamed woman who blesses Jesus and anoints him for burial. Which brings me to the sixth favor. Would you reflect on the message with me? We've called this series Gospel Devotion. It's devotion in response to the good news of Jesus Christ. That by his death and his resurrection, death has been conquered our sins have been paid for. We are set right with God. Gospel devotion, devoting ourselves in response to the good news of Jesus. 
And so today when we talk about undistracted devotion, we're talking about Christocentric faith and Christocentric faithfulness, putting Christ at the center of our lives. The woman got it right. We don't know if it was providential spontaneity. We don't know if she was led by the Holy Spirit. We don't know if she simply was a better listener than the disciples. But the disciples got it wrong. I think we know something about getting it wrong. You see, there has been this tendency throughout the centuries that people who would very much describe themselves as followers of Christ end up on some kind of side road. They call it Jesus way, but when you look back at it with the eyes of history, you can look back and go, wait a minute, you took a turn somewhere, and you called a road Jesus way that's not the way of Jesus. And you've blessed it, you said it should be this, and yet Jesus is not the center of that road. The tendency for every generation to create their own turn off, their own bypass that doesn't have Jesus at the center. You know, here at this congregation, and you know how organizations can have these important statements that keep them on track, and so our church did that as well. A number of years back, we looked at, gosh, what, what is it that we do? One of the questions we asked is, what is it that we do? Let's make sure we know what we do. And as people who belong to Jesus, remember that's our big theme all year long is that I belong. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. As a people who belong to Jesus, what is it that we do? And here's the answer we came up with. That we reveal the kingdom of heaven through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and mission. It's important that we know the order of those things. We don't just do worship. We don't just do discipleship. We don't just do fellowship. Or we don't just do mission. Our calling, what we do is we reveal the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has to be center. The kingdom of heaven is, is that domain where God's heart rules, where, where the person of Jesus Christ is at the center of everything. Here's what's at stake. It's in the person of Jesus that all of life comes together. It's in the person of Jesus that all of life comes together. And so if it's in him that it comes together, we do not want to be distracted from him in our devotion. In Jesus, we have salvation. In Jesus, we have unity and fellowship. In Jesus, we have spiritual formation. In Jesus, we have guidance on morality and ethics. In Jesus, we have the very wisdom of God. In Jesus, we have our call to be witnesses in this world. The Apostle Paul puts all of that in one discrete sentence. I'll put it up on the screen. It comes from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. Here's how he puts it. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. That's our, our fellowship and our unity. Who became to us wisdom from God. Wisdom is taking knowledge and applying it rightly to situations. Jesus, at the center of our lives, helps us take knowledge and apply it rightly to each situation. 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification. He's our morality, our ethic, our, 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 our call to, to holy living. He, he is our spiritual formation and redemption, our salvation. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord, let us be witnesses to the goodness and the good work of Christ. This is Christocentric faith. This is Christocentric living. So let's do one more favor, please. I'm going to ask that we respond to the message. We put on thoroughly biblical, salvation history-based, Christocentric lenses. You know, we all have lenses. We've used this analogy before. We all have lenses. We have lenses that, that we've developed over the years. Even if we don't have glasses, we have lenses on. Maybe we happen to wear uh, conservative lenses or liberal lenses. Maybe we have uh, Republican lenses or Democrat lenses or, or possibly we have uh, Fox News lenses or ESPN lenses or maybe we have TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter feed lenses. Maybe we have white lenses or maybe we have black lenses or maybe we have Chinese lenses or maybe we have Indian lenses. We have lenses. We develop lenses and we put them on and they tell us how to see the world. We see the world and it's awfully hard once we have our lenses on to take another pair of lenses and put them on because we're not used to them. We think our lenses are the right way to see everything. But if we want to respond to the message of putting Jesus at the center, the undistracted center of our lives, we're going to have to listen to Jesus. You see, I, I've already said that we don't know if it was providential hand of God or if it was the leading of the Holy Spirit or if she was just really a good listener to Jesus. I like going with the latter. I can't prove it. But I like that, that here is a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and she listened to him. And we can listen to Jesus as well. In fact, one of the things I'll throw out to you, and it's, it's in the study sheet for today, that would you take a gospel over the next number of weeks, as long as it takes, as long as you can stand in there, would you take the, one of the gospels, if you're in the class that Greg's teaching, maybe take the gospel of Mark, and every week just take one teaching, one story from the life of Christ, or one parable that he told, one teaching, one story from his life, one parable that he told, just take one of them, and for the whole week, chew on it, meditate on it, turn it over, memorize it, think about it, Take it into every situation. Take it onto the team bus. Take it onto the field of play. Take it into your classroom. Take it into, into your home, into the conversations, into the hard conversations. Take it into your humor, into your entertainment, and let that little revelation of Jesus be at the center of your life. Listen. With our favors now completed, we return to our question. Here is the question we end with. When it comes to Jesus being the undistracted center of your life, which one of these responses best describes your desire? Meh? Yeah, sure, why not? Kind of, sort of, most of the time I'm trying Or Jesus, Jesus, all for Jesus.
at this church, we're longing, we're working, we're praying that for all of us, it would be Jesus, Jesus, all for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we cannot thank you enough for the story of this woman. We don't know how she got it, but she got it. She, she was so focused on Jesus, she could act in the moment that, that she was a part of your, your, your grand story, your, your salvation history, the thing you were working out in and through the life of Jesus. And Jesus was at the center of her story, all eyes on Jesus all the time. And God, you know how much we resist, how much we uh, are just uh, lazy about putting Jesus at the center of our lives. And would you help us with that this week? Would you help us to listen to Jesus and that Jesus, his voice, his, his ministry, his work, his salvation, all that he offers, that it would be the center of our life this week. Would you bring that to our memory? Would you bring that to the front of our mind? We give you praise, God. We thank you for the gift of who Jesus is and the gift of him in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here in worship, participating uh, via the live stream. It is good to be God's people together. Maybe you have questions coming out of this conversation. Maybe there's someone you know that has questions about this type of a conversation. Let's keep talking with each other. And once we've received the love of God, once we know something of the love of God, let's choose to offer that love to the other people we need. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you all.